Amen. Good morning. Lots of fun stuff happening as we launch into the fall. And uh, one of those fun things is that we are starting a new series today, uh, Live Fully. We're going to be going through the book of Philippians together, verse by verse, over the next several months. And uh, looking at this uh, abundant life that Jesus invites us into. John 10, 10, Jesus said, The thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and life in the full, life in abundance. And Paul writes this letter to a church in a city called Philippi, reminding them of who they are and who they belong to, reminding them how to live fully into this abundant life. Life. So you're going to want your Bibles this morning, and you can go on and open up to the book of Philippians. If you, have, if you need a Bible, we have some people walking around, just slip up a hand, and they'll get a Bible in your hand so you can follow along uh, with us. And uh, while you're finding your way there, one thing I want to encourage you, I say this every week, but way more important than anything that I would have to say uh, from up here is what God wants to be speaking into your life all week long through his word. And so my encouragement is as a congregation, as we're going uh, a deep dive into this amazing letter, this book of Philippians, uh, that you in your own study would also create space in your life to just get into the word and let God speak into your life. Uh, what, what does he want you to know? What's he speaking into you? What does he have for us in our world today? His word authoritative, living and active. And so a couple of ways to do that. One, uh, and I, I always uh, offer this up uh, every time we do uh, go through a book of the Bible. It's one of my favorite resources out there. Uh, they're just called the ESV Scripture Journals. And, uh, and we have them actually for sale. They're $5 up in the coffee shop. Uh, if money is an issue, just grab one. We don't, I mean, just want to get the resource in your hands. But that's cheaper than you'll get it on Amazon. But basically, it is just uh, the, the, the book of Philippians. But next to each page with the scripture is just a page for journaling. Write down questions, insights, uh, prayers. And it's just a really powerful way to go book by book and just dig in uh, in your own study. So I encourage you, grab one of these, uh, the, the scripture journals in Philippians. And, uh, and starting next week, uh, this week we're actually going to be kind of stepping back into the context of Philippians before we really get into uh, the book itself. But starting next week we'll be offering a day-by-day -day devotion uh, just to read through Philippians a few verses at a time. Now, this is what I want to say, is that Philippians is one of the most quoted bumper sticker slogan books in the entire Bible, right? I mean, we know this, I can do all things through Christ who? Strength is me, right? Yeah, we know these phrases, but to understand the power of those phrases, we really need to know the book as a whole. They're not just random little uh, spiritual slogans uh, to put up on a cat poster. They are... Words that, uh, that affect the way we see ourselves in the world that we live in. And so with that, I would encourage you to read Philippians as the letter that it is. It takes about 15 minutes to read from the first word to the last word of Philippians. 15 minutes, that's it. In fact, uh, some of you, I, I would encourage you with your kids, get one of these journals, put it in an envelope and stick it in your mailbox and have your kids run out to the mailbox and get it, open it up and then read it just as if it was a personal letter being written to your family. Because that's what it is. A personal letter being, to, being written to very real people in a very real place, facing very real problems, very similar to the problems in the world that we face today. 
And so let this word saturate your soul. Memorize it, meditate on it, and see what God might do over the next 60 days. So Philippians begins. Paul and Timothy. And that's as far as we're getting today. <laughs> that's true. Let me go on and read it just because I love this verse. Paul and Timothy, servants, doulos, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, along with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance for you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, the good news from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Just like any good uh, Greco-Roman letter, Paul actually begins with who it's from. Because to understand the meaning and the depth of the letter, we kind of need to understand who's writing the letter, right? Like if you got a letter giving you some really good tips to improve your golf game written by your nine-year-old nephew. You'd be like, man, that's sweet. That's cute. Thanks, buddy. But if you got a letter giving you some tips for improving your golf game that began Tiger Woods, PGA Hall of Famer, to you, you would read that letter a little differently, wouldn't you? So it's important for us to understand that what this letter is saying is that we get in the heart and the head of the one who's writing it. Paul, alongside of his son in the faith that he calls him in multiple places, uh, Timothy, this young man that we, we, we will find here in the, uh, the account of where this letter comes out of. We find who it's from and who it's to. To those saints this term referring to all of the believers in this city called Philippi. And Paul's longing, grace and peace for them to live fully into the good news, to become fully the men and women that God made them to be, to embody this good news of Jesus. And not just as individuals, in fact, it's amazing that throughout the book of Philippi, there's hardly anywhere that Paul uses uh, you in the singular, meaning you as an individual. Most of Philippians is written in with the good old southern y'all. To y'all, to you people, to the church. Recognize that the church is not a building. The church is not a service that we attend. The church is not a program that we go to. The church, the saints, are the people of God gathered together to encounter the presence and to live in the reality of the power of God for the sake of the place that they're in. That's the church. That's who we are. That's who you are. You, y'all, we are the church. 
And it's together that we're being invited to live in the fullness of life in Christ where the good news, the gospel can be proclaimed, where we can grow together into the fullness of this life that Jesus invites us into, that we can recognize together the voice of the good shepherd that calls us by name and leads us forward, that we can go together for the sake of the neighborhoods and the nations and the next generation, that we can learn together what it means to be sons and daughters who become spiritual mothers and fathers, that we can learn together what it means to be content in every circumstance, whether we have little or much, that we can learn together what it means that Christ can do all things in us as he strengthens us, that we can learn together what it means to lower ourselves and have the mind of Christ who let go of all that he had in heaven and became a servant even unto death. These are the words of Philippians, and they're words that we're invited not to just read, but become. And we only become together. And so let's get into the mind of this guy, Paul. Around about the time that Jesus was being born in Bethlehem, a few years later, a baby would be born in a city called Tarsus. That baby would, have, uh, would be born into a family of influence and wealth. The father was a Pharisee, meaning that he uh, was uh, a religious leader. Now, I know when we hear the word Pharisee in our uh, Often in our Christian context, we can immediately think bad, right? The Pharisees, they were bad. Jesus was good. He fought against the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are bad. But in that day, that's not how they were seen or understood. I mean, the Pharisees were the, the social uh, religious leaders of the community. They were the ones that you went to for wisdom and advice, they were the ones that were trying to, to hold the Jewish people together, to move towards health and wholeness, even as they lived in poverty and oppression. And in fact, it was the Pharisees that were considered the most faithful of God because they held on to every word of the law. And in fact, what they believed was that the reason that the Jewish people, even though they were in the promised land, were still living under the oppression of the Roman Empire was because they had failed to keep all of God's commands. They would failed, like in Deuteronomy says, to listen to the voice of God and to obey him. And so now they were living under the curse, even as they returned from exile into their own homeland. And so the Pharisees believed they needed to repent, to return back to the ways of God, which meant returning back to the full letter of the law. And that it was when we, we, we went astray from that law, when we didn't fulfill every letter to the, to the degree of even their interpretation that took a law and then dug in deep to figure out, okay, if this is what God says, then this must be what he means. And if this is what he means, we need to obey all of that for God to be pleased enough to restore us back in to becoming the, the, the kingdom of God that we were meant to be. And so they were, were zealous for the law. And into this Pharisee family, this baby is born. Now, just like any Jewish kid, uh, this, this child would have, from the moment he could learn to, uh, to, to talk and to hear, would be memorizing the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, word for word. 
So that by the time that he reached adolescence, he would have a good chunk of the Old Testament memorized. Then a handful of those kids, the ones that were deemed the best and the brightest, would be invited to become part of a Pharisee school where they would then learn and memorize, not just learn about, memorize the rest of the Old Testament, the Psalms and the prophets. So that by the time they were in their mid-adolescence, they had the entire Old Testament memorized from beginning to end. Let that sink in. And this young kid growing up in this home, I mean, he was smart. And he had a gift for languages. And he loved the scriptures. He loved the law. He was passionate about it, zealous for it. I mean, it burned in his bones. He knew the words of the prophets. He knew the stories of his patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob. He he knew the story of Joseph and and Moses leading his people out of slavery into the promised land. He knew the history of the kings. And he longed for God's promised anointed king, the Messiah, who would restore God's people and restore God's glory and restore God's presence in that place. And a handful of those kids, as they graduated up out of Pharisee school, would be selected only the very best and the very brightest, one or two at a time, to sit at the feet of the grandmaster rabbi of the day, a guy named Gamaliel. And this kid, with all of his language knowledge, with the scriptures memorized, with his passion for God's law, was chosen to learn at the feet of Gamaliel the premier Jewish scholar. And so it was with Gamaliel that he grew into his young adulthood, was invited to be a part of this Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, which is, about, which is 70 Jewish leaders that represented and, and judged on the issues that were facing uh, the Jewish people out of Jerusalem. And so it would have been there, sitting in the Sanhedrin at his mentor Gamaliel's uh, shoulder that most likely he would have been there when this ragtag bunch of nobodies, uneducated hillbillies, were dragged in because they were creating this uproar about this guy named Jesus who supposedly healed a guy that they had known since they were kids was born blind. And they kept talking about this Jesus. And they didn't just talk about this Jesus as a great rabbi or teacher. They didn't just talk about this Jesus even as a great prophet. They talked about this Jesus as the Messiah. And that was blasphemy. In fact, he referred to Jesus as the Nazarene, one from Nazareth, because everyone knows no good thing can come out of Nazareth. And how dare you? Desecrate this law that I love. How dare you desecrate the glory of God by having the audacity to proclaim that this Jesus of Nazareth is our long-awaited, prophesied, and promised Messiah, our Deliverer, our Savior, our King. Because he also would have caught wind that this Jesus was hung on a Roman cross like any common criminal. And yet somehow this little group of nobodies, uneducated fishermen, 
and blue-collar workers were saying that he wasn't just hung on the cross like so many thousands of people along the streets of, or outside the city of Jerusalem, but somehow three days after they watched him die and put him in a tomb, that he rose from the dead. And so Saul would have sat there seething in righteous anger because they dared, dared belittle his Lord God, creator and maker of all things, the one true God of the universe, by saying that that God became a man who died and rose again. Amen. Amen. And so he would have been listening when Gamaliel, having beaten the snot out of Peter and his companions and then thrown them in the street with the command to, not keep, to never talk about this Jesus again, and Peter on his way out would have over his shoulder said something along the lines of, who are you to tell us whether we're going to obey God or men? And then they would have convened back in the room and, and tried to figure out what do we do with this Jesus problem? And, and in all of the anger and the murmuring and, and the wrestling, Gamaliel would step forward and the crowd would go silent because he always had the final word. And what he would say is this. He would say, men, gentlemen, listen, we've had this thing happen before. There have been all kinds of so-called messiahs that have risen up, created a stir, and then they end up getting killed or overthrown and their followers scatter and then it's not a problem anymore. If this thing is of man, then let it go and it's going to become nothing. But, Gamaliel's advice, if this thing is of God, then we do not want to be fighting against God. Now, that sounded good to the majority of the Sanhedrin, but there was still something burning in Saul. And especially as day after day and week after week went by and more and more were being added to their number daily. This thing wasn't going away at all. In fact, it was just advancing more and more rapidly, this good news that the God of this universe had shown up and made a way to reconcile with his people. Rich and poor, every person was being invited to discover the forgiveness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so Saul goes before the council and he gets a letter that gives him permission to go throughout the land and any home that he finds, these so-called followers of the way, that he can drag them, men, women, and their families and throw them in prison. And the first time we actually read about Saul by name is in Acts chapter 7. When there's this young man, a follower of Jesus named Stephen, and Stephen has been proclaiming the good news of Jesus, pointing back to the Jewish scriptures all the way from the beginning and saying, this is the one that we've been talking about, learning about, waiting for, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death once and for all, for all mankind. And man, they didn't like that. And Saul 
rounds up a group and, uh, of other Jewish men that, that pick up these stones. And as, as Stephen is preaching, they grab a hold of Stephen, drag him outside of the city, and they stone him to death. And in Acts 7, the word he uses is that, is that Saul stood there greatly pleased at the death of Stephen. And the men who were stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr, laid their cloaks at Saul's feet. In other words, he had the position of authority. He was in charge of that execution and proud of it because he thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. And so he gets this letter and he begins to go from town to town and it says that at this moment, Acts 7, that the persecution, or that because of this persecution, that the Christians in Jerusalem are scattered throughout the region, throughout all of Samaria and, through, and throughout that whole part of Judea. And with them, the gospel spreads. The very thing that Saul was doing his best to try to crush and contain, God was actually using Saul to multiply and advance. Which is interesting because from the time that God knit Saul together in his mother's womb, he was made to be a man who would multiply and advance the gospel. Even when he didn't know it. And so he's on his way up to Antioch, and between Antioch is, uh, and where Saul is, is this little town, this is a city called Damascus. And Saul is on his horse with his entourage to go to Damascus to look for any of these followers of the way, and does Acts 9. And as he's making his way to Damascus, it says that a light from heaven strikes Saul blind, throws him to the ground, and a voice calls out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul hasn't been persecuting this language of attacking God. He's been, he, he's been glorifying God, obeying God, following God, doing everything that he had memorized and knew for God. And so he, he calls out, Lord, who are you? And God answers from heaven, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment, Saul's life is radically transformed. Everything he thought he knew gets flipped upside down, and yet everything that he was preparing, God was preparing him for, gets flipped right side up. And it changes everything for him. Now, he's pretty passionate. He's a zealous guy. He's a smart guy. And from the moment that, that God heals him of that blindness and, and releases him in, back into the world, uh, Saul begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, arguing forcefully. But everywhere he goes, he's actually stirring up more trouble than he is helping out. So much so that the believers finally are like, listen, you got to go. And so Saul, for a number of years, disappears into the, into the Arabian desert to be alone with God. And there he'll encounter Jesus in powerful ways. He'll write about it later in his letters. That it was Jesus himself that ministered to Paul, that, or Saul, that it was Jesus himself that revealed the gospel and began to connect all the dots of everything that he had learned and memorized and stood for to this Jesus in this moment in history, this cross that became a resurrection. We just got done talking about wilderness seasons and what God does in those seasons. And we don't know exactly what happened and we don't know exactly even where he was, but we know that Saul comes out of the wilderness 
He ends up back in Tarsus in his hometown. And we don't hear about him for a number of years. Which I think it may be a word for somebody that feels this burning in God that God wants to use you in powerful ways. But sometimes God wants us to sit quietly alone with him before he launches us into that season uh, that he is leading us into. And Saul is willing to do that. Now, as so Saul disappears out of the pages of Acts, and, uh, and we end up, Peter is, uh, is now kind of the, is the leader of the church there, and James and John, and um, James gets killed, and they, they're uh, they continuing to experience persecution, but the church is continuing to advance, uh, so much so that everywhere it goes into these cities, it doesn't just stay among the Jewish people. But it begins to actually kind of, uh, kind of overflow out into the community, so much so that Gentiles or non-Jews, pagan Greek, uh, Greco-Roman people, are responding to this good news of God's deliverance and forgiveness and freedom in Jesus Christ, surrendering, surrendering their lives to Jesus as Lord and King. That was just super confusing for them because they understood Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish deliverer. So all these questions begin to get stirred up. Like, well, do you have to become Jewish to start following Jesus? Do you need to get circumcised? Do you need to start following the dietary restrictions? I mean, do you need to, to start obeying the, the laws of Judaism in order to be obedient to Jesus, uh, the Messiah? And so this council convenes. And, uh, and at the end of that council, the decision is reached that it is grace through faith and faith only, not anything we're born into or anything that we can do that saves us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the forgiveness of God is a free gift for all of humanity. And with that declaration the gospel go, begins to go to the ends of the earth. We sit here now because of that supernatural revelation that God was, what God was doing was not for one people in one place at one time, but through that one people in that one place at that time, God was redeeming all of humanity back to himself in Christ. And it is only by grace only by the free gift of God in Jesus that any one of us, not your credentials, not your obedience, not your background, not your ethnicity, not the city you were born in, not your religious upbringing, none of that. It is only by the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. Now, as, I mean, so as, as this spreads from the Jews to the Gentiles, the Jews are becoming more and more resistant. The Gentiles, it is like a, a Christian party. I mean, they are just going nuts over this thing. Giant revival happening in all of these cities. The Spirit's coming upon them. Miracles are happening. Uh, the, the, the speaking in tongues that they don't even know and, and people are getting healed and I mean all of this amazing stuff and, and the word comes back that all of this stuff is happening out here on the fringes and so uh, just wanting to make sure that things are staying kosher but not Jewish kosher just kosher, kosher in the sense of it's all okay 
the, the council in Jerusalem sends this guy Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, up to, uh, to go check out what's happening in Antioch. And when he's there, he's so, his heart is so full to see how powerfully God is moving among all of those people from all of those different nations. And he remembers from years before this guy, Saul, that Jesus had saved. And when God had saved Saul, Saul, God gave a word to Saul that you are going to be the apostle, the sent one to the nations, to the Gentiles. And something in Barnabas' head clicks, and he's like, you know who needs to be a part of this? Saul. So Barnabas goes, and he gets Saul up in Tarsus. We don't know what's been going on. We can probably imagine that it's not been easy for Saul. If you remember Saul, hometown hero, Pharisee of Pharisees, leaves his Pharisee family and uh, is going on this mission for God and the Jewish council. And all of a sudden, he's returning home a follower of the very way that he was so adamantly opposed to? Can you imagine his dad's reaction to that? I mean, it would be like growing up an Auburn fan and coming back wearing crimson. You know, I mean, it is like, this is, no, it's way bigger than that. I mean, that's a stupid, silly example, but it is not, you can't imagine it's been easy for Saul there in Tarsus. But Barnabas goes, gets Saul, brings him to Antioch. They begin ministering in that place. Out of Antioch, God calls them to go on mission, to go to the, the Gentile cities and begin proclaiming the gospel. They begin this pattern where every city they'd go into, they begin uh, in the synagogue, re proclaiming, uh, reaching the Jewish people. And then once they got kicked out of the synagogue, which inevitably would always happen, they would go into the, uh, into the common area and begin to preach to the Gentiles. And there they usually were received and there would be an amazing uh, revival in that city and a church would get planted. On the second one of those, and we'll pick this up in Acts chapter, uh, at the end of Acts chapter 15, uh, Saul, who at this point has renamed himself Paul, Saul is a very Jewish name. Paul is a very Greek name. And uh, Paul was very adamant and very good at uh, living in, contextualizing the gospel into the places he was going. So if he's going into the Gentile world, it made sense that he would identify himself with a Gentile name. And so Saul becomes Paul. Um, Paul goes with Silas in this community of other, of other men uh, to go on this mission out of Antioch on the far right side there. Other side note, as much as we know of Paul and can easily think of him as this lone, range spirit, lone ranger spiritual giant, Paul never operated alone. And in fact, the one time he goes alone to a city, you know what the first thing he does is? Find some other people to minister with. Why is that so important for us? Because we live in an American spirituality or culture where individual spirituality is the most important thing. And we've begun to believe this lie that I can follow Jesus by myself. The reality is we were never created by God from the first pages of scripture all the way up until Jesus and the disciples to Paul or Peter and his companions to Paul and his companions to live out this Jesus thing in community. So maybe one of the most important, well, the first important question is, are you following Jesus? Have you received this good news of Jesus Christ into your own life, the forgiveness of God, the restoration into relationship? 
with your creator who knows you and sees you and loves you, who calls you by name, that wants to give you the gift of his Holy Spirit, the presence of God in you, to live the abundance of life, not just waiting for heaven one day, but the kingdom of God being lived out in our world today. Will you receive the good news of Jesus? And then walking with Jesus, who are the people God has put alongside of you to live this thing out, to spur you on, one another on, towards love and good deeds? Who are your people? I mean, part of why we put so much effort into this fun little carnival going out in the courtyard is because we believe passionately that for you to live into the fullness of the life God has created you for and to live out the fullness of Jesus' life for the sake of this community, we need each other. And so Paul had his people, and together they go on this mission. And Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, these uh, twin cities. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. What I love about Paul is not just simply that he recognized the, the need for other brothers around him as he was going on God's mission and living out this life with God, but also he always had his eyes out to raise up the next generation of spiritual leaders. And so he recognizes something, that he sees something in this young kid named Timothy. At the time, Timothy is just a random teenager. In fact, he, his name doesn't really even appear in the rest of the story for a while. But what we know about Timothy is that under Paul's mentoring, he ends up becoming a spiritual giant, a church planner and a pastor and preacher in his own right. And so he takes Timothy. They make their way through the cities, delivering the, the good news that the uh, the council had reached the decision reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. And so, verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. I love this shift here uh, in Acts 16. Uh, up to this point, it's that the, the believers are multiplying daily. But here it's the churches are multi—I mean, talk about exponential. No longer is it just simply more and more individuals coming to faith. It's communities of individuals multiplying and coming to faith. That everywhere they go, they're planting churches. That the local church is the hope of the world because it is in the local church that the living body of Christ can be lived out together. In homes and communities. And this is hundreds of years before the first church building is built, by the way. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the word, Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Go, go to that first map. So you can see they're kind of making their way across from the first Antioch through Derby and Lystra and Iconium to the second Antioch. They like to name cities after people, and sometimes they would name the same city or different cities after the same person. So it can get a little bit confusing. But from this place, Paul, you can go to the next map. Paul is really wanting to make his way south into Asia towards Ephesus. I mean, a whole bunch of his ministry is him trying to get to Ephesus, but there's something that's preventing Paul from going. 
And so Paul, having responded to the call of Jesus Christ in his life, and now knowing the who of the people called is going to go with, is still listening to God to discover the two who God is calling him into, uh, forward in. Not just who with, but who to. And in his heart, he wants to get to Ephesus. But God has a different plan. And we don't know if that's because of timing or God has, uh, God has something else that he's wanting to do. But there's something in his spirit that's keeping him from going south into, into Asia. It says that, that they're prevented from going up north into, uh, up into that area of Galatia. And so if they can't go up and they can't go down, the only thing they knew is to keep moving forward. And so they begin going towards Troas, and it's there that Paul receives a vision. And at that vision, a man of Macedonia stands in front of Paul and says, come help us. Paul wakes up the next morning, tells his companions about this vision, and together they agree that God is calling them to go up into that area of Philippi. Now, why would it take a vision of God to get them to cross that little strip of water? I mean, Paul's not afraid of boats. He's going to cross way more miles over water at other points in his journey. He already has uh, in previous uh, missionary journeys. Well, Philippi was a well-known city. In fact, the, uh, here in Acts, it tells us it was the leading city of Macedonia at the time. And, uh, and the reason it was such an important city is because it was the site of this famous battle between Octavian and Marcus Antony, uh, who were, uh, after, the, after the assassination of Julius Caesar, were fighting over who would become Caesar. Both of them had amassed massive armies, and they collided there just outside of Philippi. And it was there that Octavian... It was about, uh, about 30-something B.C., if I'm not—don't nail me down on that. Uh, but decades before Jesus shows up on the scene, uh, have this decisive battle, and Octavian wins. Octavian will end up becoming Augustus Caesar, who was Caesar when Jesus was born. And because of that victory, he awards or rewards Philippi with the highest honor you could give a city. He makes it an official Roman city, meaning that it has all of the rights and privileges as if you were living in Rome itself. It became a military garrison, like a giant military base. And so the city would have been filled with both current and former soldiers. It would have been a patriotic city. I mean, every mailbox you would pass probably had a Roman flag flying from it. I mean, these guys ate, slept, and breathed Rome. They were patriots to the core. And in Rome, Caesar is Lord. And here comes this band of missionaries with a very different message, proclaiming that the real good news is not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And it will overturn everything in your life, as Paul knows very personally. It will wreck everything you think about yourself in this world that you live in. And it will overturn a city. The other thing we know about Philippi is that there's no evidence of a Jewish synagogue until uh, about the third century. 
And by Jewish law, to build a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men, 10 practicing Jewish men in a city. Meaning that in Philippi, not only was it a military base that was deeply patriotic to the God of Rome, who was Caesar, but there were no other Jews in the city. There's not even 10 men to form a synagogue. But when God calls Paul and his companions to go, Paul says yes. Into this dark, broken, seemingly offensive, closed-off community. Because God was already at work in the place that wasn't even on Paul's radar. Now, what could that mean for you? What are the places that you've given up on? What are the relationships, the communities, the kinds of people that you would say, they're so far gone, there's no way God could ever work there? And maybe, just maybe, as we let Lord King Jesus wreck our lives and begin to build around us a community of people to go with, he might just be calling us exactly in to those places even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's not our best plans. Paul loved Ephesus, but God wanted him to go to Philippi. He would make it to Ephesus one day, multiple times. He spent years there. But for now, he obeys Paul. I mean, God, they get on a boat and they head into Philippi. And we pick up in verse 16. Sorry, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Luke, who's writing this gospel, who at this point is uh, um, a companion of Paul. And you can know that because in this chapter, it shifts from when Luke's writing about uh, Peter and Paul talking about the things that they did. Uh, when he's writing about what's happening in Philippi, he talks about the things that we did. And immediately, uh, and so on the Sabbath day, sorry, we remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, one who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, to, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So imagine they're in this city, surrounded by Roman soldiers and Roman patriots, not another Jew in sight. And so they're praying, walking, and the best thing you can do is to just walk and pray in the place that God sends you whether that's the school where you work or the neighborhood where you live or the office, uh, the office place that, that you go to, the store that you own, just to walk and pray. And as they're walking and praying, they're thinking that, well, if anybody uh, believes God, there's kind of this practice that you'd find a, a quiet, secluded spot on the Sabbath and you would go there to worship and to pray together. And so there's this river right outside of Philippi, and it says that they suppose, they're thinking, as they're just trying to be strategic, okay, God, where would your people be? And, uh, and they go to this riverside, and there they encounter a group of women praying. And one of those women was, a uh, one of those women was named Lydia. 
And Lydia, it tells us, was a seller of purple goods, which is significant because purple was the color of royalty. So to have the right or the privilege to be able to sell purple items, you had to have royal permission. So most sellers of purple goods were actually of the household of Caesar getting special permission to sell this royal cloth. So what we know about Lydia is that she was a woman of influence, she was a woman of means, that she had a big enough house that she could have a number of people come and stay with her. And more important than the amount of money that she had, for the positions of power that she had, for the connections in the highest places that she had, all of that is irrelevant except for the fact that her heart was open to God. That in this pagan city, God had already prepared in advance a person of peace for Paul to meet. This Greek woman named Lydia and her wealthy household. And out of her house, they could plant the first church in Europe. And Lydia would become the first follower of Jesus in Europe. How would you like that distinction? So they plant this little house church in Lydia's living room. And day after day, they go from her house out into the community talking about Jesus. And as, uh, and as Paul would leave the house with his companions, there was this young girl, a slave girl, who was being trafficked by a group of men. Because uh, as the scripture tells us, it says that she had a spirit of divination in most translations. The word there literally is she had a python spirit. And what a python spirit is, is there was an oracle at Delphi, which uh, was a place that these, these young slave girls would be kept, and, uh, and it was believed that the python spirit would come upon them and that would give them the ability to foretell the future. And so Roman generals would go to the oracle at Delphi and to these young priestesses to get word whether or not their next military campaign would be successful. And so here is this young girl, the slave girl who's being trafficked with this spirit of, the, of this python spirit and is making a ton of money for these guys. And every day as Paul would leave the house, she would follow behind this band and she would cry out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Now what she's saying is technically true. But there's something about it, either the way she's saying it or, or the stir that she's causing or, or that the people know, uh, know who she is or how she's being used. I mean, there's something about what she's doing that is greatly uh, aggravating to Paul. That word isn't just simply that he was like annoyed by it, but I mean, he was deeply bothered in his gut is the, the way that Greek's written. And he turns and he rebukes that evil spirit and he sets that little girl free. And so the second person that we know that encounters the grace and the power of Jesus in Philippi is a young slave girl that God sets free. Well, the people don't like that very much. They've just lost their ability to make money off of this young girl. And so they grab Paul and Silas and they bring him before the court and they throw him in front. They beat him with rods. 
and, uh, and they accuse them of stirring up the city. After beating them, bloody, they put them in the stocks. And the stocks are this, uh, this tight-chained enclosure where you were sitting in such a position that your body inevitably would start to cramp. Your muscles would start seizing up. Now, Roman prisons, uh, they weren't necessarily known for being super sanitary. There, there were no utilities. In fact, you were just chained to the wall, and if you had to go, you had to go. So you can imagine sitting there in blood and in feces and in just the gross yuck of this, of this Roman prison with their body beginning to convulse in pain, their wounds becoming infected. It says that Saul, Paul, and Silas began to pray and to sing hymns to God. That in their pain, they began to praise. That they saw their problems as opportunities. And that everyone else in the prison leaned in and listened as these two men prayed to God and sang songs about Jesus. And it said that as they sang, that an earthquake strikes the city and shakes the jail so hard that the doors fly open and the chains break off the wall and they're set free. Now Paul and Silas recognize that not every open door God is asking us to walk through. And they keep listening. And God tells them to stay right where they are. Because moments later, this Roman jailer would come running in and he would see that his house would have been attached to the prison. And he would see that the, the prison doors were open and assuming in the dark of the night that the prisoners were all, uh, had all escaped, it says that he, he gets his sword to kill himself. We can presume that this jailer was, was previously probably a soldier. He knew violence. He knew Rome. And he knew that the punishment for letting a prisoner go is that you get to take on their sentence. And so instead of facing torture and execution by his Roman superiors, he decides just to end his own life. That's a better way out. And from the darkness, Paul cries out, Stop! We're still right here. And it says that that jailer runs in and falls in all of the yuck of that prison cell at Paul's feet and cries out, what must I do to be saved? Which is actually the wrong question. The real question is, what has been done that I might be saved? And so Paul tells him the good news of Jesus and that jailer receives Jesus, takes Paul back to his home, washes his wounds, and it says his whole family is baptized together that night in the name of Jesus. So the third person that we know that encounters Jesus in this city of Philippi is this Roman jailer this good old boy soldier and his family. And this little church made up of a wealthy Greek woman and a young slave girl 
and a Roman soldier all united around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus becomes a gospel center for that whole part of the world. Now, it's interesting that ever since Saul was a young man, he, he would have been taught a certain prayer. We actually, have, there are fragments of this prayer that are ancient, ancient fragments uh, of the, this Pharisee prayer uh, that still exists today in some form or fashion, that Jewish men still pray this every morning to some degree. The words have changed a little bit. But the oldest version of this prayer that we know that Paul would have learned as, a, as young Saul that he would have grown up praying goes something like this. As he would walk out and he would see the sunrise, he would pray, blessed are you, Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Thank you that I was not born a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. And God, by his grace, so wrecked Paul's life in the best way that he takes this good news into a pagan city and who are the first people to encounter the good news of Jesus? A woman, a Gentile, and a slave. And I wonder, a couple years later, when Paul would write a letter to the church in Galatia, which was the neighbor of Philippi, if he wasn't thinking of these stories when he wrote these words, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free and that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, male and female, slave or free, but all are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Ten years later, Paul would write, would find himself in prison again in Rome. And he would begin to write letters to these churches that he had helped plant. And he would write a letter to this church in Philippi, reminding them of where they'd come from, of who they are, of who they belong to and encouraging them to live in the fullness of this gospel life that Jesus had saved them for. And so that is the context of Philippians. And so for us today, the invitation is, is simple. What does it mean to keep saying yes to Jesus for you? Or maybe to say yes to Jesus for the first time. What is the next step of faith God is inviting you into? Into this fullness of life in Christ. Is it for the first time to surrender to Jesus as the true king of all things? To surrender your life and invite Jesus in to receive his forgiveness and his grace. Or maybe for you, it is to, to take a step forward into community, recognizing I need other brothers and sisters around me to help me grow, to strengthen and encourage me, to remind me of who I am and what I've called to. Or maybe 
God is calling you to find your Timothy. Who is that young person to bring alongside in your journey? That you could say, like Paul says, follow me as I learn to follow Christ. What is the next step of faith forward for you? And so we're going to continue on in worship. And we invite you into communion. This rhythm of this reminder of the presence and the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus taking that bread at the Last Supper, breaking it and said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. As we take the bread of communion, it's an act of faith of receiving the presence of God in Jesus Christ as real as that bread. The life of God given for you. And then Jesus took that cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of a new covenant. Take and drink. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. An act of faith in receiving that cup, that reminder that on the cross, Jesus paid the full penalty that we might be restored into relationship with him. And so we take communion as active faith. I invite you to come and just kneel and surrender. We'll pray for each other and let God speak into your life. What does it mean to say yes to Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this amazing story. That isn't just a story that happened a long time ago, but it's a story that you invite us to live into right now. And so, Lord, I pray for every man and woman here no matter where they are in their own journey, in their own walk. God, that they can hear your voice. Call them by name. They can have a sense of your presence. We may receive your forgiveness and grace. Be filled by your spirit to lead us forward. And so Lord, we say yes. We say yes, whatever that looks like, God. Will you lead us forward one step at a time with you?